The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Welcome back to another semester. I'm trying something I've never tried in my life. Brother Blaine's face has inspired me. I'm <laughs> seeing if I can get a little warmer. So far, my wife, well, she, it's still up in the air. My, uh, my dad and mom are coming next week to visit uh, for the, well, to visit us and to go to the uh, Bethlehem Conference for Pastors and Church Leaders. My mom has never seen my dad without a beard, except in Air Force pictures. So 40, 40 many more years, uh, mid-40s, he's always had a full, full beard, but he's never seen me with one. So I've at least resolved to keep it on until next week. We will see. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. These next two weeks, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 as preparation for the great atonement text, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. So this is setting us up. The last time we were together... We saw those struggling under the weight of divine punishment call out to God in chapter 51, verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And I noted that within Isaiah, the arm of the Lord is not only the instrument of strength that brought about the first exodus, it's the instrument of strength that is anticipated to bring about a new exodus. And not only that, the arm of the Lord is an image of the servant Savior Himself, the Messiah. He is the means by which God will prove Himself strong, bringing great redemption. So the cry was, awake, awake, as if God were sleeping. And yet our God never slumbers. And now God turns that cry on its head and calls the audience who is under sin's burden, who is far from God, to themselves, wake up. Read along with me in Isaiah 52, 1-12. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. 
Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. I'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, may we not slumber today, but may we have eyes to see and hearts that celebrate the fact that you have come and set us free. I pray that your name would be magnified through us. I pray that your word would be alive, that it would pierce into our souls and encourage us in the midst of a evil and troubled world. Thank you that you are worth serving. Thank you that you're at work saving. Exalt your name this day, I pray. In Jesus, amen. Awake, awake. We see it in verse 1. It's in a feminine singular form. God's talking to the city. We've seen this before where the city, personified as a woman, is the bride of Yahweh, the city Jerusalem. And he's on a mission to redeem her, and that city has offspring, that is the people who will fill that city, who are identified with the new Jerusalem. So we start out with a message for Jerusalem that I'm just going to say all of us want to be identified with. Here's the structure of our passage. A call for Jerusalem to wake up, strengthen herself, and dress like a priest. We'll see that. A call for Jerusalem to remove her fetters. Each of these are followed by reasons why they need to act. This pushes us beyond what I read into next week. A call for the waste places of Jerusalem to rejoice and a call for Jerusalem's priestly populace to depart and be purified from what is unclean. We're going to, Lord willing, look at the first two parts of this today. We begin here. A call for Jerusalem to wake up. So Jerusalem has been the center of God's focus Since David set up Jerusalem as the capital and moved the central sanctuary there in around 1000 A.D. B.C. Thank you. 1000 B.C. Jerusalem has been this image that's represented God's people. It's also been the the central place where God's presence has been made known. And yet Isaiah has already anticipated the fact that Jerusalem would be overcome because of its sin. It would receive the same fate that all the rest of the nations have received because God takes sin seriously. And the rest of the world should take sin seriously. 
Because he's a good judge, meaning that he will punish sin appropriately. He doesn't let anything go. And yet, somehow, this God who is always just, and who's declared not only the rest of the world, but even Jerusalem to be under sin, he's declared that sin is not the final word, that curse is not the end, and that it'll be overcome by blessing. And this whole year and a half, we've been focused on those blessing texts within Isaiah, where the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. We're going to see good news mentioned in verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's the word for gospel. That's why I've called the study that we're in the gospel of Isaiah, because he was the first one of all the prophets to use that word to talk about the hope that would come through the servant Savior, whom we know as Jesus. He uses that word, good news. And in this text, he's calling Jerusalem to wake up to the fact that he is on the move bringing good news. And I just encourage you not to separate yourself from this Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the image of the bride of God. And this word goes out for any who would identify themselves with her as the bride of God. Who would find hope and help in the means that he supplies. And there's no other means for salvation. Jerusalem. Here's the call. We see it in chapter 52, 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. So we've got some things to unpack here. First of all, Exodus 19 identified that God's original vision as revealed to Israel was that they would be a kingdom of priests in the midst of the nations. So think about what a priest does. He's a mediator at a temple. God's presence is at the temple. The priest is there, a human agent, to mediate how sinners can meet and fellowship with this holy God. The very fact that a temple exists is an amazing grace because it's a testament that the God will have fellowship with sinners. And in Israel, it was clear that the only means for those sinners to approach the throne room was through the altar. The altar stood at the center, right in front of the door to the temple. So the means to enter into the temple where the lights were always on and hot bread was always on the table, God was home, welcoming, inviting people in. They'd bring a sacrifice. The sin sacrifices, the burnt offering would be wholly burnt to the Lord. No one would get to eat it but Him. The sin offering or the purification offering would be offered and then that food would, that, that meat would go to sustain the priests. The guilt offering or the reparation offering, when you've 
actually sinned not simply against God, but against a neighbor, and you need to repair that relationship, those offerings would also be eaten by the priests. But then you've got the thank offering and the fellowship offering, both of which the offerer would bring, and he would get to enjoy the meat. She would get to sit at the table in the presence of the great king and eat in his presence. It was like a giant potluck at the temple. People would gather in and the great king was inviting you to his home to actually enjoy fellowship with him. And the priests would mediate all of this fellowship. But what's distinct about Israel is not only that they would have priests, but that they, as a nation, were called to be priests. That the entire nation was called to be priestly. Look at the text. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Notice that. There's Israel, the covenant people, and then they're positioned in the middle of all the peoples. That is, the rest of the nations of the world. Amidst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel at the center of the earth. That's how Ezekiel 5.5 describes Jerusalem. The city at the center of the earth. To the east of them is the giant Arabian desert. To the west of them is the Mediterranean Sea. And the two great centers of all civilization are Mesopotamia in the north and Egypt in the south. And when transaction, whether through war or through expansion of commerce, wanted to happen, everything went through the land between, that is, through Israel. It was truly at the center of the ancient world. And God placed them there as a people in order to be a kingdom of priests, to mediate the goodness of God, the value of God, the worth of God to all these people who were under God's judgment. But rather than obeying the voice of the Lord, rather than keeping His covenant, loving Him with all, loving their neighbor as their self, rather than doing that, their hearts were just like all their neighbors, hard and wayward, they were prayerless. They were more interested in the words of man than the words of the Lord. And they just lived like the rest of the world. And because of that, the good judge had to punish them. They lost their priestly status. Hosea is ministering at the same time as Isaiah. And this is what we read. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. So Isaiah is speaking at the same time, and he's imaging, in his mind, Jerusalem has become a non-priest. Or, as he continues to say, since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. God casts them off. And Isaiah envisions, and he lives through, the northern kingdom of Israel's destruction under the hands of Assyria. 
And the southern kingdom, he anticipates their destruction, the very city that he's in, Jerusalem, under the hands of Babylon. And that's a picture that Israel is no different than the rest of the world. The servant Israel is filled with sin. But there's another servant. Not only the servant Israel, the person, but there's the people, but there's an, a servant Israel, the person. And we've learned about him. He's one who will represent the people. But it's too light a thing that he would only represent the people. God will make him a light into the darkness of all the rest of the world that the rest of the world could be saved. And it's all those outside in the world and those who are ethnic Jews who now have the opportunity to be identified with a new Jerusalem. That God's bride is going to be a cleansed bride, a forgiven bride. So we read this hope. The hope language is this. Don't only wake up, put on strength. Don't let your heart be filled with despondency. Put on strength. Where you've been excessively weak and broken under the burdens of this life, I want you to recognize a strength that I can give. With that, put on beautiful garments. The kind of garments that a bride would wear. Exodus 28 said about the priests, Aaron and his sons, you shall make make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory, and there's our word, for beauty. Beautiful garments. This is why I, I think the imagery here is it's portraying Jerusalem as not only a Redeemed bride, but a redeemed priestly bride. Notice in verse 11, it says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. That's an echo of Numbers chapter 1, 50 and 51, where the Levitical priests were set apart to carry the temple instruments. All that would be part of the temple, these priests were set aside. That's the group we're talking to right now. In particular, in verse 1, it's, it's Jerusalem as a city is being portrayed now as a, a priestly bride of God who's supposed to be dressed in an arraignment that is no longer um, a picture of filth, and sin and brokenness, but of redemption and cleanness. This is another text that came to my mind. Zechariah is going to preach 800 years after Isaiah. He's one of the final, sorry, not 800 years, 
700 to 500, 200 years. That's better. 200 years after Isaiah. And he, he, he envisions a problem. He's one of the final Old Testament prophets, Zechariah is. And the problem is that God has been forgiving a remnant from the beginning. Preserving a people, even though he judges many, he still has been preserving. And in fact, under Zechariah, he's brought a group back to Jerusalem. There's a new priest, his name is Joshua. There's a new governor, his name is Zerubbabel, and that governor happens to be, he's got Davidic blood in him. And in the book of Zechariah, the fact that there's a new high priest and a new rebuilt temple, and the fact that there is a Davidic governor gives hope for the ultimate priest king, Messiah Jesus. At the end of the Old Testament era, there's still hope that exists. There's still Davidic blood, and God promised that the Messiah would have to come from the line of David. And there's hope that God's presence would be realized. In the midst of that, there's a problem. And that is that Satan knows that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And so even though there's a priest, God can't justly be pardoning Israel. So this is what God says. Look at the text. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. King Jesus will be the high priest. Joshua is a picture of him. And in this text, he's actually called, you and your friends, Joshua, are but a sign of a more ultimate ultimate Joshua, a more ultimate Yahweh saves And that's the text that goes on right after this. You, the high priest, the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan happened to be there. In the presence of God, just like we see in the book of Job, where Satan showed up in the courtroom of God. And it's in that context that God says, go ahead, go after Job. Here, Satan is there And he's accusing, standing at the right hand of Joshua, accusing him. He's filthy. He's a sinner. He can't stand and mediate for the sins of others when he himself is filled with sin. And the Lord said to Satan, shut your mouth. Almost. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen, hear this, I've chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not Jerusalem like a brand plucked from the fire before it's all burned up? Oh, it may be hot. It may have tasted the fire of God, but I will not let the stick be completely consumed. Because my affection is for Jerusalem. And the high priest Joshua represents Jerusalem. So I say, go. Get Joshua some clean clothing. See, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. It was a picture of his sin and of all Jerusalem's sin. 
And not only Jerusalem's sin, but the rest of the world's sin. Because Israel was a picture of what the world... They they were the instrument through which, through you, all the world would be blessed. And yet they had become just like the rest of the world. My sin, your sin, making the garments of that Joshua filthy. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Joshua, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. We go on to read this in the very next verses. Let them put a clean turban on Joshua's head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Hear now, O Joshua, the angel of the Lord says, You and your friends who sit before you, all the rest of these priests who also were in filthy garments, ultimately Satan was right. Guilty, guilty. All of them were guilty. All of you are but a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, hear that, the branch. Like a new garden is going to sprout from him. I'll bring my servant the branch, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So how is it that Satan will no longer be able to accuse? Oh yes, the blood of bulls and goats and human priests in the Old Testament, they were but pictures and they were faulty pictures. The answer will come when God raises a single individual in order to show that he is both just and the justifier of all who believe. And on a single day, he will wipe away the iniquity of the earth. All of that is, is, I believe, what Isaiah is anticipating in our text. When we read in Isaiah 52, put on your beautiful garments. They're moving from the context of mourning to a context of dancing. They're moving from a context of shame and guilt and sinfulness to a context of purity. They're moving from a context of unable to enjoy the presence of God because of their uncleanness to a context where they're going to be able to enjoy the presence of God again. And the testimony is, never again will there be anyone who is uncircumcised or unclean in your midst. Now, last time we were together, three weeks ago, we unpacked one of the themes that has been constant throughout Isaiah, and that is that that first Exodus experience was designed to anticipate a greater Exodus. Well, one of the elements that was essential for Passover to be celebrated, which is the the celebration of that Exodus, was the fact that You had to be circumcised. The mention here of uncircumcision identifies that 
There's going to be a purification of the presence of God, a purification of the people of God in a distinctive way. Here's Isaiah. I mean, here's Moses in Exodus regarding the first Exodus. This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought with money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. Circumcision in the Old Testament was only done with men, the heads of the households, or future heads of the households, and it portrayed an identification with the people of God. Even in Egypt, where they were coming from, there was a form of circumcision. The priests were circumcised, but it was a circumcision where foreskin was not removed. Circumcision doesn't demand the removal of foreskin. All it demands is the freeing of the glands of the reproductive organ. So you can just slit the backside of the foreskin and all of a sudden there isn't any restriction. But you still have the foreskin there. And of the peoples outside of Israel in the ancient world that did circumcise, no other people removed foreskin. All they did was slit the dorsal side of the reproductive organ. The Philistines were a group that didn't circumcise at all, nor did the Romans later in Israel's history. But there were peoples that did circumcise, but they still had foreskin. Israel, because they removed the foreskin, was able to use that image to talk about identification with the Lord. If you don't have foreskin, then you've identified in a distinctive way with Yahweh and His people. And that's why they could take this physical image and use it metaphorically for circumcision of the heart. If your heart is like that of the nations, not identified with God, then you've still got a shell around it. You're more like the world. You need to get rid of that shell. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 10.16 Those with foreskin weren't supposed to be in the presence of God. And yet Israel, according to Jeremiah, who preaches after Isaiah, has been more like the nations. They've identified themselves with them. Deuteronomy 9.24, this is what we read. 9.25 Behold, the days are coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised with a foreskin. The ESV says circumcised merely in the flesh, but the Hebrew literally says, like word for word, circumcised with a foreskin. And then it lists Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. God's people had become like the nations. And God now says in our text, Isaiah 52, 1, the uncircumcised will no longer be a part of this group. That is, they're going to be, everyone who's a part identified with the New Jerusalem is going to be transformed. And I don't think the point here is the physical reality. 
It's a spiritual reality. In the same way that the uncleanness is not focused on dirty hands, but dirty hearts. And God's anticipating a day when all those who are identified with Jerusalem will have been cleansed and will be able to function as priests in his household. You have come, church, to Mount Zion. This new Zion that Isaiah is anticipating, you've arrived there. Not just Jews in Christ, Gentiles in Christ. Because Christ is the ultimate Israelite. He is Israel, the person representing all of the ethnic Israelites who surrender themselves to God, but also representing all the rest of the nations. He is the ultimate husband and he represents the bride You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood. That is, you've been cleansed. And it speaks better than the blood of Abel in that, remember there is Cain and Abel. Cain offered the fruit offering. Abel offered the sin offering. That is, he offered a beast. But it was only a picture. It was still the blood of a goat, the blood of a bull. That's why God accepted Abel's offering, I believe. Because he recognized that it would take blood The sacrifice of a life in order to pay for his own sin, not just the offering of fruit. And yet, even what Abel did, as pleasing as it was to God, it was but a picture, a foreshadowing of a more ultimate sacrifice. And we have come and been sprinkled with the blood of the more ultimate sacrifice in Zion. This very Zion that Isaiah is anticipating. A place where everyone who's identified with it is clean. Now we go to Revelation 21 and see how it portrays this new Jerusalem, which is the bride of God, which will come down and fill all things. But this Jerusalem that Revelation anticipates will come down from heaven as the bride of God is already in reality. It's already there. We're just awaiting for the new heavens and the new earth. For that reality to fill everything else up. But it's there. That's the Jerusalem that we're already identified with. Or according to Paul in Galatians 4.25, Jerusalem that is our mother, that is Jerusalem that is above. The bride of God is Jerusalem, the city. And that city is filled with offspring. Nothing unclean will ever enter into this Jerusalem nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you there? Are you among them? Isaiah says, wake up and recognize, O Jerusalem, that you can stand in strength today. You you have been reclothed. 
Not with filthy garments, but through the justification of God. Been brought into something pure. And that's how he looks at you. Verse 2. A call for Jerusalem to remove her fetters. Here's the, the comment. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. So you wake up and it, okay, you put on strength. You put on clothes. And now you, you shake dust off of you, maybe in the same process that you're putting on the clothes. Is this how he is envisioning it? And you sit down, no longer wallowing in the dust, but you're sitting down as if on a throne. And you get to take the bonds off your neck. He's still talking to Jerusalem. All of these are feminine singular. Jerusalem the city, loose the bonds from your neck. The loose there is is group, that's plural. Your neck is feminine singular. All of you who are identified, loose the bonds off of your neck, Jerusalem's neck, O captive daughter of Zion. From chapter 49 all the way up through chapter 55, we no longer hear of Babylon as the great oppressor. Instead, the focus has all been on the work of the servant, the person, to save people from their brokenness. A brokenness that is deeper than the physical realm, that enters into the spiritual realm. That doesn't just need restoration back to a place, it needs reconciliation with a God. Where God's going to enter in and and shape and reshape and, and transform. And this image of the setting free the prisoner, it recalls texts that we've already seen unpacked for us. So just turn with me back to Isaiah 42. This is the first of our servant songs. Four servant songs. We've looked at three of them. These are special poems in the book of Isaiah that celebrate the servant Savior, the person. This servant, verse 1, whom is upheld by God, upon whom God's Spirit is placed, we read in verse 7 that his mission includes opening the eyes that are blind and bringing out the prisoners from the dungeon. And now God's saying, it's happening. And even though he's not mentioning the Messiah, I think we're supposed to see him there because already he's told us that's the instrument by which he's going to let it be accomplished. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 is the second of our servant songs, and right in the middle of it, we read this, verse 8. God's talking to the one we know of as Jesus. 
He's speaking to his servant Savior, the man. In a time of favor, I answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and I will give you, O servant, as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. Saying to those in darkness, appear. This is the work of the servant. In our passage, shake yourself from the dust. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck. Why? Because something has happened. The servant has shown up. That's what we're supposed to see here. I think that's what Isaiah would want us to see. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation... Not just replacement of refugees. This is a redemption from the deeper enslavement, enslavement to, to brokenness and despondency, the enslavement to fear and bitterness, to laziness, to negative responses, to save us from all of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation. Not just the justification in the past, but the present time salvation. Through the cross, we are being saved, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. That's present time, being saved from my own struggles with sin. At the cross, he overcame all the principalities and the powers triumphing over them. They no longer hold us in their grasp. And Isaiah is, is speaking into such a world and just saying, wake up. God has brought freedom to you. Here's the reason for the call. Thus, because, shake it off, because you group of people, masculine, plural, were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. So they were sold for nothing. God gave them over. That's the language three times in Romans 1, isn't it? Gave them over to a debased mind. Gave them over to sexual immorality. He just gave them over. They didn't... Satan didn't somehow uh, have to pay for that. God just gave them over, like He did to Israel in Judges 2. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. Yet our text says, it wasn't with any money. He just placed them under the bondage of others. But then it says, you shall be redeemed with something other than money. Now when it says, you'll be redeemed without money, don't think that it's a free redemption. 
There's other things you can pay for redemption for than money. Look at how Isaiah sets it up here. I'm just going to track the verb to redeem. We see it right there in our, in our passage. You shall be redeemed without money. Then we go to verse 9. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Why? For the Lord has comforted His people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. We have to say, how has He done it? We know that He didn't do it with money. Then the next time we see this, it's right after this long section, 52, 13 to 50, 12, 53, 12 happens, and then the next time we see redemption, it's in 54, verse 5. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, O bride, and the reproach of your widowhood, O Jerusalem. You will remember it no more. Why? Because your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. You've got redeemer in chapter 54, redeemer in chapter 52, and between those two redeemer texts is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The redemption comes at great cost, but it's not with money. You were ransomed from all the filth, all the brokenness, all the proneness to wander of your forefathers. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, you were ransomed with the blood of Christ. This is a costly redemption for which all of us in this room could not pay for on our own. Yet God paid for it, yet not with money. But Isaiah is setting us up to, to, to recognize that, that money can't buy this kind of redemption. You can't bribe God. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is, is non-existent because we have a God who is not prejudiced and takes no bribe, but He lavishly bestows mercy. But that mercy is costly. He has to be a just judge. That is, he cannot let sinners off the hook. There has to be a payment. But it's not a payment with money. It's going to cost life. And the blood of a lamb wasn't enough. It had to be a human dying because a human sinned. And Jesus comes and gives the most costly payment. Full substitution in order to bring about the redemption. And that's, that's, where we're, that's what we're coming to, and it's glorious. Notice for you were sold with money. Why should you, should you sit down as if you were a king? Why should you not live under the burden of as if you were still a prisoner? Because you've been redeemed and, and then this gets extended, 
For my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there. Jacob took his twelve sons. They were there. They established themselves. Pharaoh turned bad and he enslaved them. That enslavement of the first exodus anticipated the need for a second exodus. Assyria is another picture of Egypt holding Israel in the grip. Assyria oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away. They're in exile. They're separated from me. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. What am I going to do about this? And all of this shapes the backdrop to why, why Jerusalem should now live as if she's redeemed, as if she's freed. This image here of misrepresenting God's name Verse 5 is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted this way. It's from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You who boast in the law, you Jews, you've got Abrahamic blood in you, but you're far from God. You boast in the, we've got the law, we've got the law, but you dishonor God by breaking the law with your lives. For as it is written, your lifestyle makes my name blasphemed among the Gentiles. The name of God is put under disrespect among all the nations. And it's why? Because of you. That's what God says here. We see something similar earlier in Isaiah. Whom have you mocked and reviled, O Sennacherib, king of Assyria, against the Holy One of Israel? The northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria. And it nurtured, so Israel sins, they get punished. But then Assyria begins to mock God, believing that God is small and not great. So God isn't portrayed as mighty. He isn't portrayed as worthy. He isn't portrayed as able. Here's how it's worded in Ezekiel later after Isaiah. When they came to the nations during their exile, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. How? How is it that Israel, the Jews, portrayed, profaned God's name? In that all their neighbors said of them, wait, aren't these the people of Yahweh? And yet they had to go out of his land. That means God was either too weak to keep them there or not loving enough to want them there. Which is true? Was God too weak or was he not loving enough? I don't know that either one is true. But those would be the options, Brother David. False to both, False to both yes. But that's, those are the options that were laid before the, the nations. God isn't strong enough. You, you have to remember, this isn't just a battle of America versus ISIS. as if it's only human. Every ancient battle in the, in the ancient world was a battle of the gods. And in Israel's being kicked out of the land, 
They have profaned the name of Yahweh as if he was too small. And yet God had to do it because he was a just judge. But God will not let his name be profaned. They go out of the land, and yet God says, what is he going to do? Look at our last verse here. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. For the sake of his name, he will make a new covenant. For the sake of his name, he will bring about a new exodus. For the sake of his name, he will restore a bride. Call her Jerusalem. That's the highest end of God's movement. His love for us is for the sake of his name. May we have hearts that live for the sake of his name. Just after it says they profaned God's name among the nations when they were kicked out and they say, isn't this God's people, Yahweh's people? How could he not keep them there? God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. He's going to bring a redemption of his people that will be seen by the nations. And in doing so, he's going to make much of himself. In our passage, it says, They will know my name, and I will speak it. Remember, up to this point in the book, all of God's speaking has been met with deaf ears. So the implication at this point is that God is speaking in a way that's going to awaken knowledge. And as in the first exodus, he's going to make his name known. Pharaoh's question was, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Israel's question to Moses was, who is it that sent you to us? And the answer was, Yahweh has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. At the end of the book, Yahweh declares his name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's one half but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the, children and, the, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's his name. What does his name unpacked look like? Mercy and justice. Do you know God that way? Jerusalem will know the Lord. They'll know His name as one who works in mercy and works in justice. And both of those are brought together on our behalf at the cross. Brother David. Just one to know that I am in verse 6 there in Hebrew. Does it have any reflection on what God It's not in the same form. 
This is the, um, the form that Samuel declared when God says, Samuel, he went to Eli, go back to bed. Samuel, he went to Eli, go back to bed. He went to Samuel, he went to Eli. Next time, tell God you're ready to listen. Samuel, fourth time, here I am. And it's, so it's not exactly the same form that we see elsewhere. All right, brothers and sisters, we have a God who has come, who's let us be identified with a new Jerusalem. We are no longer enslaved. We have been declared a bride of this God, priestly bride sitting on a royal throne. Take heart. That is your identity. And one day, we will no longer be exiles. What he's going to do in this text next week, Lord willing, we're going to see him call people to start a journey, a pilgrimage. They've come out of their prison and to start a pilgrimage of hope. And we're still in it. Part of this second exodus, being led ultimately by the Messiah. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being our help, our Savior, the Redeemer who purchased us not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Thank you that you have declared us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that we might proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May we be among those who boldly proclaim as we await the full appearing of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.